Hello, I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars. We've prepared a short survey about our podcast, which I hope you'll take. Whether or not you're a regular listener or joining us for the first time, your thoughts are very important to us. It will be a great way for us to close out 2021 by learning a bit about your interests and recommendations for the podcast. You can find the survey at mbelibrary.org slash survey or click the link on the episode webpage. Again, that's mbelibrary.org slash survey. I'll remind you about it again at the end of the episode. So now to the episode and the subject at hand. We like from time to time to give our listeners an inside look at what is going on behind the scenes at the Mary Baker Eddy Library here in Boston. So I'm really happy today to be checking in with the library's oral history project. As I've come to have a little bit of exposure to these oral history interviews, it struck me how diverse they are in terms of the accounts and the people represented in them, each with a unique experience to tell in connection with the story of the Christian Science Movement. As a way of getting into this rich body of material, we are going to play clips from an earlier episode of Seekers and Scholars called State of the Heart of Oral History. Our guest for that episode was Dr. Steve Sloan, an accomplished oral historian who is director of the Institute for Oral History and associate professor of history at Baylor University. I'm looking forward to finding out from our guests how their experience with conducting and transcribing interviews for the library's oral history project resonates with Dr. Sloan's insights and observations. I'm happy to welcome Judy Hunnicke and Steve Graham, managers of the Oral History Project. Hello, Judy and Steve. Hi there. Thank you, Jonathan. Steve is Senior Manager, Programs and Communications at the library, and Judy is Senior Research Archivist. Also with us is Rivi Feinsilber. Rivi has been transcribing the interviews, which gives her a particularly keen insight into their content. Rivi is Assistant Archivist at the library. Hello, Rivi. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, it's, it's wonderful to have you. So, all of you, I just want to start with the question, why are we doing this project? I think that both Steve and I have realized that there's a lot of history that one doesn't find in paper documents. As an archivist who primarily works with older paper records, you begin to realize that there are a lot of stories that you just don't find there and that need to be recorded and that need to be a part of our history. Mm. Yeah, I would say you could think of the documents as more the formal and the oral history as what isn't usually formal, filling in those blanks and providing context through a person's individual experience is a remarkable way to enrich our historical record. So, Rivi, you are hard at work, sort of in your own zone, transcribing these recordings. Do you have any questions for the conductors of these recordings, Judy and Steve? I do. So, <laughs> as I transcribe one oral history— they mentioned when they were talking about their experience that they wanted to make sure they responded to the questions that you sent them previously uh, before you set up the actual 
interview, and I was wondering what the purpose was of those questions. I think it's a really important question because we don't want to make it sound like we're leading people with a laundry list of things that they must say. That's definitely antithetical to what oral history is about. This is their story. It isn't for us to step in and tell them what they are going to say. Nevertheless, our guests seem to also appreciate knowing what the direction is that we might be going. For that reason, sometimes we do give them general questions and guidelines. But this is always framed with the definite statement, there is no right or wrong here. What we want to hear is from you, and we want you to to drive this. Steve, that's great. You're making me picture an interviewee driving a car down a side road to explore history around a certain event or period. I think that idea really relates to uh, this clip from Dr. Sloan. I think one of the things that working with oral history and any source material helps you realize is, is the biases and the silences and the distortions that exist in every element of the historical record. Uh, the gaps, the silences, uh, the things that are misleading that are put down, uh, the ways in which uh, documents often reveal formal relationships, but they, the informal relationships uh, are missing and absent. So that's kind of an extraordinary statement that we really can't fully trust the official record um, and that these uh, oral histories are really important in filling in these gaps and maybe correcting some distortions or biases that exist in that record. As a researcher, I find history in what is left out. It tells us what an individual knew or didn't know, for one thing. It tells us what was sensitive, confidential, or even completely off-limits to discussion. And we find omissions in oral histories and omissions in documents, too. So these two sources of information, oral history and documentary history, can complement each other in ways we are really only just starting to explore. Judy, what you were just talking about is making me think of an interview that we discussed that you and Steve had with Terry Erickson about her experience in becoming and being a Christian Science military chaplain, serving, I believe, in the United States Air Force in that capacity. It's quite an extraordinary story of perseverance, really from start to finish, in this clip that I'd love to feature, you're just starting to get in with Terry about how it all began for her with this question from you, Judy. So then what steps did you take once you decided that you did want to be a chaplain? Well, I, I did contact the Mother Church. And at the time, the chaplain service training program had been shut down for a couple years, and they were just opening it up. And I applied, and I, at that point, I started to bump into military people, which was interesting to me because I'd never been around them. And it just led me to believe that God was preparing me. And during my interview, the church invited me up to uh, go through a series of interviews. And it was very clear to me that they really were not looking 
for a woman to become a Christian science chaplain. One of the interviewers was cute. He said, have you asked your father about this? And I thought, well, I don't live with my father. Another one said, I want you to be very clear that the enlisted men do not like officers and they do not, not like women. They don't like chaplains and they don't like women. And you need to be very clear about that. And then there was a third one who made a similar point. And uh, when I was done with those three interviews, I thought to myself, I'm not going to do this because I really wasn't trying to push women forward. I was just trying to follow God's lead. And so I walked into the office of a woman who was not one of the interviewers. And she asked me, what were your motives for applying? And I went back to my love for God, church, wanting to pray for others and wanting to serve our church and the world. And she said, those are exactly the right motives. You need to stick with that. And then I realized those motives were direct from God. And there was a need for this type decision-making based on motives rather than gender. So I moved forward with my decision to be a Christian science chaplain. If you were to want to talk about what Stephen Sloan was saying there about biases and, and gaps and silences, uh, I think that's a marvelous illustration of that. I don't think that the documents from that time or the the things that people were writing would show what was under the surface there. Mm. Uh, what she's bringing out is this undercurrent of basically, you know, discriminatory thinking, uh, and not just in the military, but but in the church too at the time, and the way that that played out through Terry Erickson's personal account, as she describes it here in this oral history is really illustrative of the significance of women's advancement in the chaplaincy. And, and I think extending beyond that to the whole military, really, probably showing ways that things were playing out at that time. And when you say that time, what, what time are we talking about? Early 1980s. And she was a chaplain for, I believe, 26 years. Rivi. Of the group that is assembled here, you are the one individual who is not a Christian scientist. And so I'm curious for you, as you do these transcriptions, like the one we just discussed of recording with Terry Erickson, what does it elicit for you in terms of insight, of questions that may come up, or how does it influence your perspective? I think for me, I can read the fabulous works by Mary Baker Eddy, and I can read the reminiscences, but there's something about hearing a history of someone who overcame a lot, and it's given me a more holistic understanding of Christian science, like those those moments where she was in the woman's office, mm -hmm. and the woman asked, well, why are you doing this? And, and she really gave the essence of what really embodied what I feel her belief and practice of being a Christian scientist. And it's just great to see that we have the capacity present day to be able to record these moments 
we put it in transcription for accessibility. So if someone needs a research and they want to look at a particular topic, they can go through. But really listening to it, you can capture the feeling with your ears that you can't necessarily capture through the transcript. Right. Well, that's great. Thanks so much for that, Rivi. Well, I thought we'd play another moment from Dr. Sloan's interview. And it seems to have a lot of basis for the things you've been discovering in your oral history interviews. I'm always amazed at what big stories you can tell through one simple life, uh, through one simple experience. Uh, It's going to touch and intersect with all sorts of things. Well, these comments of Stephen Sloan make me think of an oral history interview that took place with Michael Seek, a gentleman who went on to be a Christian science teacher, practitioner, and editor of the German-language periodical of the Christian Science Church. But the story he's telling here takes place during the Cold War, during a time of a divided Germany, and it speaks to the enterprise and innovation of Christian scientists at that point to maintain communication within that Christian science community in Germany that is being separated by a literal wall and this geopolitical division. But the story is told from this very pure and simple standpoint of a little boy. So let's listen. Me being three and four years old, I, you know, my father, I don't know if you knew that or not, he was an, a, a sailor for a very big ship in trying to South America and, and Africa and so on. So I was just excited what he has done in, in the world, and he told me so many nice stories what has happened with such a big ship. Now, I had a little ship just to, to play in, in the water at home, like one meter. And it was a little uh, wooden ship that belonged to me, and I could play with it, but I could open it in the middle of the ship. And there I could put in a lot of papers and whatever I had liked to have. And suddenly they said, well, Michael, that is a wonderful ship that could help us to bring all the documents into that ship. And you take that little ship, and in the evening you go back with with your mother, and we go back to our father in West Berlin. And I say, hey, that is a great idea. I do do like that. One day I could have like 20 pages of uh, documents in that little uh, ship that belonged to me. And... um, then my mother said, okay, now you carry that little boat, but don't talk so much about it. We go back to West Berlin. <laughs> and once we are back in, in, in West Berlin, tell your father that you have this wonderful ship and he would like to look into it. And they said, you must be clear. It can happen that the communist uh, police will also ask you when we go over the the wall from east to west, they might ask you, what is that for a ship? And I said, yes, of course, I can tell them. And uh, so I 
was really excited. And, and of course, it happened. The communists came, and what is that for a ship? And I said, well, the name of the ship is so-and-so. And my father had the real ship that was much, much bigger. And I have a little model about it. And I just like to play with it. And the police said, um, do you have any secret things in it? Wow. And I said, yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> this is a ship that, is, uh, that was silent, and I could only talk with my, my grandfather because he was the, the captain of that ship. I could tell him, but I would never tell any other people that I have very important things in my little <laughs> in my little ship. And so these communists said, oh, Michael, what a wonderful little story. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? What, what a great thing. Just go home and tell your fa uh, father in Westville. And I said, okay, I have to do that. That's fine with me. So I could go. And this has happened probably 25 or 30 times. <laughs> and I had always the documents in it. And not every time I told the communist police that I am having uh, uh, hidden things in it, but it happens quite often. <laughs> it's an extraordinary story. I mean, just listening to it again, I'm thinking of the power of innocence. <laughs> that really kind of ruled the, the day. But it, it does seem to evoke this idea that uh, here's this very sort of simple story of um, a little kid transporting these documents in his model boat, but it speaks to so much. Well, as an archivist, I think of stories like this as the gems of oral history because this is the kind of history that you won't find anywhere else. Right. It's not going to be found in a document anywhere, that's for sure. And it, I think, opens up an understanding of what people were going through to negotiate those times in communist Germany and how this must have played out in different ways, such as this one, multitudinous ways that we don't know all about them. But here's one example that tells a bigger story, don't you think? It tells an enormous story. I, I, I don't even know where to begin to talk about the history that this tells us about what was going on between East and West Berlin uh, during the communist era. Behind the scenes views, and it, it also, uh, in the Christian science movement, helps us to you know, understand a little more about how Christian scientists on both sides of the wall were interacting. So, Rivi, engaging with this as a transcriber, when you're listening to something where the interviewee is not speaking in their first language, um, how do you approach that? How do you balance what being faithful to what you're hearing versus what is going to facilitate the reader in engaging with the document, with the transcription? In the library for these transcriptions, we do verbatim, which means that we are staying true to the oral history, except for filler words like ums or too many thes that essentially you could say clog the transcript, we stick to what is being said. And luckily, 
we have a multi-step process. So a software automatically transcribes it, and then we have three types of reviews. So if I'm doing the first review and I hear a word and I can't quite make it out, I'll listen to it at least twice. And if I still can't get it, I'll flag it for the next person who is going to do the second review and the final review if needed. If no one can figure it out, we just say inaudible, unclear. Now, if he were to say a word in German or if there is any, the native language that um, the interviewee speaks, what we would do is we would keep that in there, but in the transcription, have a translation in brackets. So for us, it's, it's about staying true to what is being said so the person who maybe doesn't have time to listen to an hour and a half, two-hour oral history, they can look through but still receive some of that essence of the conversation. What was so striking to me in listening to Michael seek was the joy that he had in that reminiscence and the joy he had in remembering the, the communists. And, you know, one of the things that Sloan brings out in his interview is how these oral histories can disabuse people of sort of preset perspectives or shift perspective. And it certainly shifted mind in terms of East Germans. I had tended to think of them as very stoic and severe and humorless. And uh, his story of these border guards, I suppose, was that they were extremely human, extremely accessible, even warm. So I, I really valued getting that uh, oral history for, for that reason alone, as well as for, for many others. Absolutely. You know, it seems to me in listening to these oral histories and in reading the transcriptions that people have really wanted to tell these stories. Is that true or has it been necessary to really give them time sometimes to become comfortable with relating uh, their stories. I think over the years I've found that some people are anxious to tell their stories right away, mm -hmm. and others definitely want to take some time. And I like both kinds of histories. You know, sometimes a story that's told right after something happens doesn't have the kind of perspective, of course, that someone like Michael Seek, who's talking about it, say, 30 or 40 years later. But both are valuable. Both tell us different things, and that's why we like to have them both. In the moment, too, silence sometimes is a marvelous motivator. You, as an interviewer, sometimes have to sit on your hands, so to speak, or keep your mouth closed and let this silent period happen uh, don't fill in the gap for them, but let the silence motivate them to say what may still be formulating, because sometimes this happens over time, and sometimes I think it happens in the moment. And I think lots of times people go into these conversations with a general idea, but then find very specific things that they want to say that they had no ability to plan for. And sometimes they as narrators emerge with, I think, wonderful new context for what their lives have meant. It makes me wonder about the idea of history as healing in the sense of when you conduct these oral histories, do you ever get the sense that over time, through reflection, through prayer perhaps, 
um, and even in the moment of telling the story, that the shift that people perhaps experience is a healing shift as they tell their story and engage with perhaps history that initially was painful, um, stressful, maybe even traumatic, that an experience of healing comes through around that history during these uh, interviews that you've conducted. Oh, yes. I Don't you agree, Judy? I, I think so. And maybe, Rivi, you've seen it too. Sometimes it's a very cathartic experience for people to tell their story. And as I was saying, you know, it happens as, as they've processed it over time or even in the moment as they've discussed it. They arrive at a place that's very, very healing for them. They see these events of their lives with new significance. We've had guests who have even emerged from an oral history recording quite emotionally. We've seen a few tears, and I think people have, have emerged not realizing just how significant this was to them. They've seen the value of the life that they've lived. And, and the perspective, even if it's just 10 or 20 years, gives us so much valuable information. I just think of Terry Erickson, for instance, the perspective that she has in looking back on her career as a Christian science chaplain is so valuable and so moving. Yes. I think talking about Terry Erickson being chaplain and her journey to becoming a military chaplain, with her, you can see when one of the interviewers during her chaplain interview said, oh, well, what about your father? And she says, well, I don't live with my father. <laughs> so you get those inner workings that may be lost in print, but it's the impression that it made on her just comes out. Those silent moments are, are brought into the light, which I think is great. If you could just uh, give us a little um, sense of what might be ahead in terms of some of the other interviews that you have planned. Well, one of the things we're thinking about is a look at the history of black members of the Christian Science Church. Uh, and there is quite a fascinating story that I think we're going to find emerging out of that, uh, as well as perhaps some more opportunities for interviewing uh, people who work for the Christian Science Monitor and learning a lot more about how that publication news service has been uh, evolving in a very challenging and uh, revolutionary time for the uh, news industry. Right. Well, Rivi, I'm, I'm sure people who have listened to this episode will be interested in these oral histories to explore them for themselves. What should they be mindful of in terms of when they become accessible? Um, it will be in our collection mm -hmm. and those that are open for the public. They can go on our website and go to our collections and listen to it, also read it. If you have the time, I think it's very important to listen while you have the transcript out because you can capture the emotion and the feeling. Well, that's great. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Rivi. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars on Oral Histories at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. As promised, I want to remind you about our survey. 
We'd love you to take it. You can find it at mbelibrary.org slash survey, or you can find a link to it on the descriptor for this episode on our website. So again, that's mbelibrary.org slash survey. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. This will be about Ruth Barrett Phelps, the first woman to be permanent organist at the Mother Church, and also the person who is to date the longest-serving organist at the Mother Church here in Boston. Hers is a remarkable story. She was also very much a fixture and a leader in the organist community here in Boston. This will be both a joyful and very fascinating conversation with music and insight about this extraordinary career. Thank you so much for listening to Seekers and Scholars. I'm Jonathan Eder. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2021.